Welcome to Leading in a Climate Changed World by Olivia Mythodrama. A slight change and a quick request for this intro. We hope you're really enjoying the insights of our amazing guests and that there are many topics to absorb and reflect on. We're lining up some more incredible interviews and would like to expand the podcast to include more people leading the change into a more sustainable world. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with friends, family, associates, people off the street, anybody who you think might enjoy or benefit from the interviews. If you've got any comments or suggestions, recommendations, or want to share anything, please email hello at leadinginaclimatechangedworld.com. We're setting up the website to include contributions, articles, and more, so keep an eye on progress. Our fifth episode sees Robin speak to Rob Hopkins, environmentalist, activist, and author of The Transition Network, a movement of communities coming together to reimagine and rebuild our world. This episode sees Robin and Rob talk about the need for imagination and creative thinking in the corporate world, how we need to move away from the 1980s platitudes of business as usual and Thatcher's famous quote, there is no alternative. They discuss the different styles of leadership we need to develop and how facing opposition should be embraced. Let's hand over to Robin and Rob. So welcome everybody to our podcast in our series Leading in a Climate Changed World. It's an enormous pleasure today to welcome Rob Hopkins. Rob is a co-founder of Transition Town Topness and the Transition Network, which was established to meet the twin challenges of peak oil and climate change some years ago now. He's also the author of The Power of Just Doing Stuff, The Transition Handbook, and The Transition Companion. And in 2012, Rob was voted one of the independent's top 100 environmentalists and was on Nesta and the Observer's list of Britain's 50 new radicals. Rob has also appeared on BBC Radio 4's Four Thought and A Good Read in the French film phenomenon Demain and its sequel, Après Demain, and has spoken at TED Global and three TEDx events. He is an Ashoka Fellow. He also holds a doctorate degree from the University of Plymouth and has received two honorary doctorates from the University of the West of England and the University of Namur. He's a keen gardener. He likes to draw. He's a founder of New Lion Brewery in Totnes and the director of Totnes Community Development Society, the group behind Atmos Totnes, an ambitious community-led development project. And he also blogs at various places. He blogs at transitionnetwork.org and robhopkins.net and tweets at hashtag Robin Transition. So, extremely well placed to talk with us about um, climate change, about leadership. A man who's definitely grounded both in theory and a lot in action. And I wonder, Rob, maybe we could just start with your first associations. When you hear the words leadership and climate change, what kind of associations come to mind? Um, well, I guess, uh, I guess what we see in the world around us at the moment is in relation to climate change is a lot of the worst kind of leadership, you know, is, is that kind of leadership of, um, you know, what, what for me feels like really imagination starved leadership. Uh, you know, the organizations who just keep on going doing the same thing because they can't imagine doing anything else. And the leaders who, who are quite happy just for, for things to carry on as they, as they are at the moment. 
um, and yeah, well, we'll keep our investments in fossil fuels. It's kind of easier and we'll just keep everybody flying around to business meetings all because it's just sort of how we've always done it. You know, I love those words of Naomi Klein's about there are no non-radical solutions left. Now, this is now the time of the climate emergency. This is a time when there are no non-radical solutions left. So for me, leadership and imagination now really go very much hand in hand because this is a time to be questioning everything and rethinking everything. And, uh, and in many organizations, um, it's hard at every level to really be really imaginative of organizations tend to sort of uh, work in such a way that, uh, that that there is very little space for imagination the, the way i like to think about it is there's a difference between innovation and imagination in the innovation is something that you do when your fundamental model works when you uh, i always talk about it being like pizza you know we all understand pizza we understand the model of pizza and you can innovate with pizza because fundamentally pizza works. You can change the toppings and the crusts and all that kind of stuff, but fundamentally pizza works. The thing with our growth based economic system at the moment and many, many of the business models out there are that they are a kind of suicide pact. You know, we are heading over the cliff at a great rate because the fundamental model is broken. And when that's the case, innovation isn't really, something we need to do anymore it's we need, we need to reimagine and so imagination needs to become our really like our superpower and uh, so for me the, the leaders who i meet who who i'm most impressed with are the leaders who are able to um carry that carry and articulate that sense of anything is possible and who and who are able to transmit and disseminate throughout that organization that invitation to reimagine everything uh, and uh, you know I, I, I'm a great admirer of Greta Thunberg the, the 16 year old the girl who inspired all the school strikes the way she it's like when, when she speaks is like every sentence is written as something you could take off and stick on a placard and, and she's so brilliant at saying I don't buy all that thing about how change isn't possible and there's not enough time and of course there's enough time and of course we can do this if we decide we're going to do it but it takes people who are really open to that so so for me yeah the, the, the people who I see as being the most inspiring leaders are the people who say who, who come with a degree of humility and a degree of I don't really matter in that in this I'm just holding the space for the questions that really need to be asked now so you've named Greta Thunberg. I wonder if you could name a few others that you've encountered in your travels and in your work. Who is inspiring you in the realm of leadership at the moment? Um, well, I, I have this great privilege to be able to go around and visit people who are doing transition in different places, uh, like in, in many, many different countries, different communities in different countries where transition is happening. And there are many people that I meet there who it feels are showing a, a quite sort of um, uh, not a leadership style that's really ego driven but a leadership style that's really uh, focused on the job in hand and and creating a really invitational space where they where they really invite people in um, I like 
I, one of the interviews I did for the book was with a woman called Helen Marriage, who runs an organization called Artichoke in London, who were a big arts organization who, who put on big, big sort of street theater pieces. And uh, they did that thing called the Sultan's Elephant in London, that incredible thing with the massive elephant and the girl walking around London. Uh, and I like her approach. I like, I spoke to... Uh, For people who don't know what that was, because this will go out internationally, yeah. maybe you could just okay. outline what the Sultan's Elephant was. Yeah, there was an amazing thing that happened in 2006, which I would say, you know, if I, if I, I'd like to think when I die, I have no regrets. But if I had one, it would be that I didn't see the Sultan's Elephant, which was an amazing art piece that happened in May 2006. And it started on a Thursday morning where people woke up in this particular street in London with no, nobody knew anything about it was going to happen. This massive wooden Jules Verne type space rocket smashed into pavement all the tarmac buckled up smoke coming out of it surrounded by police with with incident tape and when everyone would ask them what's going on they would say i don't know i don't know we're just we're, you know so uh and then the, and then so more and more people gathered around this thing looking at it, saying what on earth is this and then the next morning they they, they brought in a crane and took the top off it and out of it came this uh, puppet of this eight-year-old girl about the size of a two-story house who people said she was like everyone's daughter. She would pick children to look them in the eyes and let them swing on her arms and walk around the city. And then the next day, this massive elephant arrived who would spray water and had a whole sort of house on his back with the Sultan and his retinue. And the story, there was a very loose story that the two, the two things traveled through space. Occasionally they met up in places. Uh, and the girl slept in a deck chair in front of Buckingham Palace. And then at the end, on the, uh, after a couple of days of this, a million people came to see this in London. And uh, it's really worth looking up on YouTube. It's a really powerful piece of really emotional, sort of deeply affecting street theatre. It was only like nine months after the 7-7 bombings. And, um, and then at the end, the girl gets back in the rocket. There's all these flames and then they take the lid off and she's disappeared. And the crowd are in tears and it's quite amazing. And uh, it's, it's something that I really like because I love that example of, of, of putting on things that totally change how we look at places. A place you've walked past every day, all of a sudden has a space rocket in it that's crashed overnight, you know, and, and those kind of interventions I think are wonderful. And on a smaller scale, there's a woman called Stella Duffy who I interviewed who runs a thing called Fun Palaces every year. And uh, which happens the, I think the first weekend of October every month where communities take over a space and they just turn it into a fun palace where they do whatever they want to do and pe people teach things and they do music and they do food and whatever they want to do. And there's hundreds of them happen all over the place. And her, she said the way that they manage that is she said, we say yes to everything. And uh, we just, we just hold the space and support it. Uh, and I guess that, you know, that's always felt like what we tried to do with transition network from the very beginning is that sense of, we're not setting up transition, the transition movement to be like a Coca-Cola franchise and give people really detailed instructions of what to do. We're going to create a, a loose set of principles, a loose set of values, uh, an invitation. We say to everybody to, to be part of the transition movement is completely free. There's no annual membership fees. The only request is that you share your stories. So it's a kind of a, an international network of, uh, of storytelling. And so for me, that, that's always been the, the approach to leadership that I like, like Stella, is to, to say yes to everything and to hold a space with an invitation. Um, and that's, 
that's the kind of leadership that, 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 that I feel sort of instinctively drawn to. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm definitely going to research the Sultan's Elephant for sure. I didn't see it myself. And um, you've referred to the book. And of course, I should have said in your introduction, you're just about to publish a book on imagination. And yeah. you've spoken a bit about why imagination is important to you. And I, and I know in other talks that I've heard you give recently, you talked about organizations having chief imagination officers. And I wonder if you could just flesh out a bit how you see the role of imagination and leadership, particularly also in corporate settings. Like, could you really imagine imagination officers, for example, working in corporations and cities and then... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that, 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 that took me to writing a book about imagination was I found myself reading more and more of the people who I really respect, uh, commentators and journalists and writers, who kept talk, saying things along the lines of, climate change is fundamentally a, a failure of the imagination. We're living in a time with a failure of the imagination. But then they, and then they would just move on to saying other things. And I found myself sitting there going, uh, that's interesting. Uh, what do you mean? Why, why have we got a failure of the imagination? Uh, where did that come from? And, and, and why, why does that mean that we're where we are now? And what could we do about it? What would it look like if we, uh, if we set out to do something about it? And I read this amazing research by uh, a researcher in the US who looked at something called the Torrance Test for Creative Thinking, the standard creativity test that's been done with big sets of 20 or 30,000 people every year back as far as the 60s. And her conclusion in a paper she published in 2011 was that imagination, creative thinking, and IQ rose together until the mid-90s, and then they parted. IQ kept rising, and uh, creative thinking went into what she called a steady and persistent decline. And when she published it, it was on the front page of Newsweek magazine. It was a really big story. That was all, what does this mean for economic growth? What does this mean for Pixar? But I never heard anyone in the climate change, social justice world say, well, what does this mean for us? Because fundamentally, we need people to be able to imagine something other than business as usual and something other than what's in front of us. And those words of Margaret Thatcher, that there is no alternative, I think have been some of the, the most toxic uh, uh, legacy of that time that is still really ingrained into people's thinking. There's no alternative. Well, we better hope there's an alternative because the current uh, thing that we have is 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 putting us to toast. So, um, so for me, I I was intrigued to to go on a bit of a journey about looking at well, why might it be that our imaginations aren't as strong as they could be? And and uh, you know, there are of course many creative thinking people in the world. Many of them end up in the creative industries and very often they are kind of co-opted to work in marketing and PR and design uh, so in effect their imaginations become kind of co-opted uh, and used to further the demise of our species and to keep consumerism going uh, whereas actually you know that we, we all the brilliant imaginative minds and they often attend to how can we shave two minutes off the amount of time it takes to get a pizza to somebody's door not how could we reimagine the economy of this place how could we reimagine how work happens how cities feed themselves how we house people all the things that really really need to be done and um <clears throat> so i looked at a lot of the things that felt like they might be driving this decline but then i also looked at some really interesting uh, things people are doing about it so there's the bottom-up stuff that you see in transition but also in other places which for me i talk about it as being the art of asking good what-if questions 
so for example, in Liège in Belgium, the transition group there, they had this what if question, what if in a generation's time, the majority of food eaten in Liège was grown on the land closest to Liège? Beautiful question because it kind of creates a basket for people to come along and add their bits in. Oh, I want to start a business growing mushrooms. That sits in part of that story. It's a really powerful narrative that then all kinds of things emerge out from. And that narrative then brought the resourcing to enable it to get started. And they've now started 21 new cooperatives. They've raised 5 million euros from local people. The mayor of the city said to me, eight years ago, we wanted to be a smart city. Now we want to be a transition city. This is, this is now the story uh, of this city. Um, but that all came out of a very simple what if question. But what you were talking about before was that I also spoke, I also found out that for example, the, in, in, in Mexico City, the mayor of Mexico, as part of his administration, has what is, is called uh, the laboratory for the city, which, is, which they think of as being a ministry of the imagination, uh, which is just such a beautiful, it sounds like something out of Harry Potter, but actually it's, it's something profoundly powerful, I think, that, that you have something at the heart of an administration who, who, who are looking to to the needs of the imagination because the imagination has real needs yeah the imagination doesn't just happen uh, by accident although it is a human uh, skill and a, a human uh, what's the word like faculty uh, like a muscle you know we can either work it so that it's like that or we can just let it go so that it's like that um, but the the imagination has needs it needs space it needs time it needs us to not feel under surveillance there's some very interesting research about that uh, needs us to not feel isolated it needs us to feel kind of connected to other people uh, it needs us to <clears throat> uh, it needs us to have our basic needs on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs met it's very hard to be imaginative when you don't know where you're going to be sleeping tonight or where when you don't have any bills to pay it sort of kicks in a bit further up that up that hierarchy I think can I ask you something that's really interesting what you're talking about the, the, the needs of the imagination and I'm particularly struck by the fact that it needs to be relational somehow. You said it can't, doesn't really exist when people are isolated. Why do you think that is? Why does our imagination need a relational field? Um, because I think, um, I think we are a social creature. And uh, Dave, uh, Brian Eno talks about it really beautifully. He says, you know, we, we, we're, we're brought up to believe in this idea of the genius, that there are people who are geniuses just that they somehow are a freak of nature and they emerge as these extraordinary, like, like Van Gogh or uh, Cezanne or people like that, you know, that they just emerge uh, um, like that. And actually he says it's a completely wrong way of looking at it. And we need to get rid of the idea of genius and look at the idea of a senius. So it's somebody who emerges out of a scene. So there was a scene around Van Gogh of artists and writers and uh, uh, people who just who he met and thinkers and people he met in the pub and it was a whole scene that he emerged from and we attached it on we attached that to him or Captain Beefheart you know Captain Beefheart didn't just emerge fully formed he emerged out of a whole kind of a scene that supported him and, and, and made that possible um, uh, I forgot where I was going now what was your question again? Well, it was, I mean, you're starting to speak to it. It was about why imagination needs, my question was about why imagination needs a relational field. And you said it's because the imagination is not, what I hear you say, it's not just a, located in an individual. It comes out of us being social creatures. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, um, I, the, other, the, the, the other part of it that I found absolutely fascinating was 
the neuroscience about how and where imagination comes from. So there's a bit kind of in the middle of our brain called the hippocampus, which is shaped like a like a sort of a horse, like a, a wishy wishbone in a chicken. And uh, that's all of the networks that fire in our brain when we're being imaginative have the hippocampus at their center. The hippocampus is a part of our brain that is uniquely affected by cortisol. So when we're anxious, depressed, uh, in trauma, the hippocampus visibly shrinks by up to about 20%. Children born with very traumatic childhoods, their hippocampus can be 20% smaller. And when the hippocampus shrinks, we lose that ability to um, <clears throat> look at the future in positive ways, to even think about the future. Often when, when it shrinks, we get stuck in these kind of negative cycles of going round and round and round. And uh, I went to visit this amazing place in Dundee called Art Angel as part of the research for the book, which is a charity in Dundee that works with people with mental health issues, uh, with anxiety, trauma, stress, depression. Uh, people are either referred or they self-refer, and they're on this whole floor of this office block in the centre of Dundee. And they say, when you walk through the door here, you're not a client, you're not a patient, you are an artist who is preparing work for an exhibition, and they put on a big exhibition in a big gallery in the center of, of the city every year. And we're here to support you with materials and other people and tea and tickets and conversation. And I spoke to so many people up there who were kind of reimagining themselves. I spoke to one guy, I said, so he was about 60 and he'd worked in local government for years. And then he'd had a nervous breakdown uh, and very low self-esteem. And I said, so do you think of yourself as an artist? And he said, aye. Why not? <laughs> sort of building a sort of a new identity for himself, you know. And a lot of people I spoke to said, I couldn't see the future before I came here. And now I can see the future. And part of that is when I spoke to one of the guy who's the director there, he said, fundamentally, we create a place of, of um, safety and hope. That's what we're about here is about safety and hope. And most people who come here, uh, they're, they're broken. And what they need, you know, even that thing of deciding, Hmm, do I use a red pencil or a blue pencil for this line is more decision making than, than they've done for years, you know, and can be a really uh, sort of difficult but em empowering thing to do. So for me, yeah, it's, it's making the space, making space for the imagination uh, is kind of something that, that we need others to do and, and also that requires diversity around us. I think there's a fascinating link between the imagination and diversity. And René Dubos, who I think was a Dubot, who was a microbiologist or something, used to say, uh, if we lived on the moon, our imagination would be as barren as the moon. You know, so the more diversity that we have around us, I think, the more that feeds our imagination. That's a diversity of people, of experiences, of, of, of wildlife, of nature, of, of landscapes or whatever. But the, but the problem at the moment is a lot of that space when we should, that, a lot of that time and the space that imagination needs, a lot of that, that daydreaming time that it requires. At the moment, we just, we just fill up with, with social media and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, uh, looking, for, looking for something delightful in our, in our inbox, which is very rarely there. Right, I was going to lead into a question about the role of technology. Do you think that the technology that we have at the moment, social technology, but also the internet in general, has supported the development of imagination or inhibited it? That's an enormous question. And, and uh, it's something that before I started doing this book, I would have said, no, of course, it's been an amazing thing for the imagination. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, of course, it's been extraordinary. 
But actually, having spent the last couple of years reading a lot of the research around, you know, if you if you think of our relationship with the internet and with these technologies as being a kind of twenty-year experiment, you know, I remember before all of this, before it was even a thing, and when we wrote letters and rang people up and had map books and uh, had record collections and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's just, it's only been the, really the last. Mm -hmm. 25 years that that, that 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 has been a thing and and it's happened so fast that actually it's only the last couple of years i think I've, that, that people have been writing doing research that's really looking at well what impact is all of this having on us and, and i'm i find it really really deeply troubling um so uh, you know stuff like how how this like this idea of being always on that we feel we are always connected and people should be able to reach us any time of day or night and expect to reply from us puts us in a sort of a, a background state of anxiety which is really uh, damaging to the imagination it's a sort of drip feed of cortisol uh, which is really really unhelpful um, i think it, it it takes away a huge amount of time and space when we should be just looking out the window uh, and, and our, our attention spans are uh, it's not even just that we are losing our attention spans. Our attention spans are being robbed from us by extremely smart people who recognize the value of that attention far more than we do, I think. And uh, there's really interesting stuff about you know, what happens to a culture when it loses its attention span. You know, I started out uh, like five or six years, I realized when I sat down to write this book, I had this great big pile of books that I had to read in order, in order to write it. You know, when I was 23, I'd, I read Anna Karenina when I was 23, you know, which is like this big and the slowest book. Uh, I couldn't read Anna Karenina now, my attention span. Uh, after five minutes, I'd be going, oh, I should just check my Twitter. Oh, I must just check my email. There might be something really interesting. You know, when, when we, when, and I realized, doing this book just what a struggle it was to, to to focus my attention on anything and i think the danger is that that we are becoming our relationship to knowledge is changing that we are uh, there's uh, nicholas carr wrote a beautiful article called is google making us stupid where he said he said our relationship to knowledge is now like jet skis we kind of ski across the top and we no longer dive deep because we don't have the attention span to dive deep in anymore so we, we, there's a guy interviewed called Sven Burkett who said, we are losing the very paradigm of depth out of our culture. Mm. And uh, I write in the book about how, um, you know, I, I, I imagine Vincent van Gogh in 1888 in Arles in his yellow house there on Place Lamartine and he's been out to the marketplace and he's bought this beautiful bunch of sunflowers and he brings them back into his little kitchen there in the yellow house, sticks them in a vase, uh, gets his iPad out, gets onto Instagram, you know, starts going through Instagram and liking some pictures of people's dinners and an hour later ends up on YouTube watching films about the pyramids or something. Uh, you know, actually he would never have looked. He, he would have lost the ability to look at those flowers in that vase with the, with the attention uh, and the uh, and, and the depth and the insight that enabled him to see them in a way that still echoes through our culture nearly 200, you know, uh, 200 years later. We lose that ability to really look at things. You mentioned about drawing. You know, for me, when I go out and I do some drawing, that's, that, that's my attention 
is completely in that space in a way that when I'm working, it very rarely is. Uh, and I think we, we lose, uh, we, rather than talking about this as being the age of information, we need to think of it as being the age of attention. And we need to really, really value that attention because it's so hard to get back once it's gone. And, and it's so, so, so precious. And uh, I spoke to a guy, interviewed a guy called Dr. Larry Rosen, who writes a lot. He wrote a book called The Distracted Mind about the impact of these technologies on our, on our attention span. He said, we are evolutionarily completely unequipped to deal with this. Uh, you know, the, the, they're designed so powerfully with all the things that make us go, ooh, interesting, shiny, shiny red colors, things flashing at me, pinging noises, uh, and, you know, and, and off we go. And he said, I would say that our imagination declines exactly in relation to the amount of time we spend on our, on our smartphones. So I, 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 I think that there's, um, uh, you know, I, I'm really hopeful that, that we might see a movement which is really... You know, there's a, there's a, what they call digital minimalism now, which is about really examining your relationship with that stuff and having a month where you use it to the barest minimum and then you just bring back in the things that serve a very particular purpose. You know, it, it feels like the time, the window, the small window of opportunity that, we, opportunity that we have to do something about climate change requires our full attention. And if our grandchildren say, what did you do when in that window and we say you know, I, that would just be the most heartbreakingly uh, um, heartbreaking thing to have to tell them, I think. Right, absolutely. And I want to cycle back a bit to um, the topic of leadership and also how you've worked with leadership in transition. Because you said, you know, it's a decentralized leadership and people say yes to everything. But I imagine it's more complex than that. And I imagine there's places, for example, where you have to say no, like these activities do not fit into the transition movement. And also that you and a few other people around you are very much identified as the leaders of the movement. So even if you have a decentralized structure, there's still leadership happening. So I wonder if you could yeah. talk a bit about the kind of leadership that you've experienced in transition also, the, the, what it is to say no, like there's a kind of yes energy about many of the things you talk about, but also the places where we have to say no. We say no to fossil fuels. We say no to a lot of things at the moment. And, and also what kind of leadership you think we need to develop. Maybe there's a kind of style of leadership beyond just the topic of imagination, which is clearly critical. Just to be interested to hear your thoughts about, about that. Well, I guess... I guess um... I guess my, my uh, you know, I have found myself in a position where I'm viewed as being one of the leaders of, of this movement, but it's, it's not, that's, um, for me, what, what, for me, the, 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 the thing with Transition Network, which is the organization that we set up to support the transition movement as it started growing really, really fast, was to um, was to give away as much of the the power that it held at the beginning as it could. So there are now something like twenty five countries that have a national what we call a hub, and so Transition Italy, Transition US, or whatever, who have taken on from from what Transition who do what Transition Network used to do uh, for that country, and then their role is to support what happens lower down. So. I guess we, we sort of took that top-down model and turned it the other way around. But the role of each level is to support, is to provide whatever support the one lower down needs. 
uh, that's kind of always how we've done that. And um, uh, I guess I see for lots of very different styles of leadership in transition. You know, there are some people who are just very diligent and quiet and in the background and just getting on with stuff and who work in that way. There are some people who are very kind of charismatic and who are real kind of people, people. Um, uh, and yeah, there is definitely, I think, you know, you, you talk about saying no. One of the big things in transition for me since the beginning has, has been what we call inner transition, to say that it's not purely about solar panels and carrots uh, and bicycles. It is a process which is about um, supporting each other to do this and uh, providing the um, providing the kind of emotional resilience within our groups and our movements that mean we don't see the levels of burnout that we've seen in many other kind of previous movements. And so, for example, in my town here in Totnes, where we have, I would say in Totnes, we have more psychotherapists per square foot than anyone else in the country. Apart from Finton, apart from Finton. Apart from Finton, of course, this is true. Uh, <laughs> we have the psychotherapist off. <laughs> And uh, so our, our, our request to them for a while was, um, okay, this process is happening. How can you help? So there are now many of them who offer help and support uh, and time to anybody who's working at the heart of transition <coughs> who feels they really need it when they, whenever they need it. And I know for me, it's made the most enormous difference at certain times when transition has been very difficult and quite stressful and quite charged. To be able to to be able to have that kind of support, I found completely uh, invaluable. Um, so, so I think you know, put, putting in place the support networks that the people because because there's a whole thing about leadership in these organisations. I remember we had a we had a, a thing here in Totnes in about six years ago, where we're one of the very few towns that has stood up to Costa Coffee opening and won. And we ran a big campaign called No to Costa because we realized that we were in a town of where there were 41 independent places where you could buy a cup of coffee. Uh, and then they wanted to come and open a huge Costa at the bottom of the high street. So we ran a big campaign. And for the first time, I realized afterwards, for the first time in my life, having been involved in nuclear weapons campaigning and just trying to stop the Iraq war and new roads being built, there was the first time I ever actually won something or was in something that actually won. It was a really... This odd feeling why are we all feeling so weird oh because we this is, never happens to us you know anyway after that happened even though we had the petition in a town of eight and a half thousand people of about six thousand people and nobody ever said actually i do want to costa a handful of people decided to decided to kind of uh, uh run a campaign that was all about actually we did want to costa and who are these people to say we shouldn't have a costa and, and uh and it was very uh kind of personally targeted and really quite unpleasant and at the time i realized that actually uh all the all the people who who were involved in 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 the campaign and in transition you know we never really had that before you know we'd it, it, we'd always just been about positive and solutions and none of us really had experienced that being the brunt of something like that and i wrote an art i wrote a blog where i went and spoke to a whole lot of different people like michael mann the climate scientist who, who developed the hockey stick and who has like death threats all the time and just awful stuff. And Bill McKibben and George Monbiot and people like that. And I, and I said to them, how do you, how do you cope with this? Because it's, it's not a conversation we ever have in these movements. What do you do 
uh, particularly now with social media, what do you do when, when you become the target of, of stuff like that? I remember George Monbiot said, well, if I wake up in the morning and there are at least six death threats in my inbox, I think I'm not doing my job properly. Uh, and Bill McKibben said, I've got to the stage now of thinking, well, if someone actually was going to kill me, they probably wouldn't email me first. Uh, <laughs> but it was a really useful, a really station mm -hmm. because I, I don't think in terms of the leaders, the, the people who are the leaders in our movement, I think we also need to be aware that when they stick their head above the parapet uh, and when they're very explicit about climate change and they, and they talk about the, about the, you know, even Greta Thunberg, uh, uh, gets sort of uh, negative stuff and she's 16 you know and, w and it's really important I think that, that we design in that ability that, that people have to cope I think you know from from my perspective I try and um, you know as in, in as much as I play any kind of a leadership role in the organization I always see that as the most enormous uh, honor and privilege and that I uh, and, and I, and I Although I'm kind of by inclination quite um, uh, sort of humble, I guess, or like I, I I don't I don't naturally stick myself into the into the limelight. I do also see that <clears throat> actually it really means a huge amount to people when they have done work which they associate with a spark of inspiration that they got from you. For them to be able to then show you what they've done and take you round is something that actually really really means a lot to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's been that, that's kind of a part of it for me. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's almost a, a blessing function in a way. Yeah, it's a bit like that sometimes. It yeah. has that kind of, yeah, when you kind of show up and you appreciate what people are doing. It has a kind of blessing quality to it in a way, not in it's a religious, a not in a religious sense, but in a but in a, a, a kind of wind in your sails kind of way. It's, I don't get to, I don't have to kiss lots of babies and things. No, <laughs> but it, but it it is like. Um, uh, it, it's, I suppose it's, it's kind of taken me a, a while to be comfortable with the idea that um, that this stuff really moves people and really means a lot to people and that um, uh, and that actually when I was 21 22. I came to Findhorn for the first Eco Village conference of Findhorn, 1995, where the Global Eco Village Network was born, and I was total fanboy, starstruck kid at this at this thing, uh, and loads of the people who were my kind of permaculture Eco Village sort of heroes were all there, you know, and I was complete fanboy, and and I went to a talk that Albert Bates did about the history of the village. Uh, the the what's called the farm. farm yeah. See, uh, it was just one evening. I'd not heard of it. I just thought this looks interesting. I went in, and he spoke for about an hour and a half or something, and absolutely blew me away. It's still, I think, sort of, I I still feel propelled forward from that talk, you know. And actually, so there's so there's a bit of it for me, which is to say, actually, you know, I'm where I am, and I think like I think because of because I heard Bill Mollison speaking in a, in a church hall in Stroud, because I heard Albert Bates speaking, you know, because there were certain key people in my life who really fired me up and rewired my brain and gave me an enormous sense of possibility at particular times. And I feel like, you know, if, 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 I, can, if I can in any way give 
any people now, particularly young people, that kind of input input that I had at that time. And if I'm if if I can do that, then I really have a uh, have an obligation to do that, and uh, and it's an, an incredible privilege to be able to do that. And and I love uh, and I love seeing that. You know, sometimes like when I see that in people, uh, then I think my my work is done today. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, you are doing that a lot. And I'm really looking forward to reading your book on imagination also. And we're going to close our, our conversation in a moment. I just wonder if there's any final thoughts you want to put out there, particularly if you were to speak this to a corporate audience. Like what, what message might you want to give to any corporate leaders around the kind of qualities of leadership or what you would be looking to them to do in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say to those people, this is now the most extraordinary time in history you know the, the next 10 15 20 years if we do this if we are able to do this and and it's a very big if but the alternative is just too hideous to contemplate so if we're able to do this it will have been a period of time without precedent it will have been a period of time that the people who come afterwards will sing great songs about and tell great stories about and celebrate in all manner of ways the incredible um, focus and imagination and purpose and determination of the people during that during that 20 years and the leaders who recognized the the possibility and the opportunity of the of those times will be seen as as having been extraordinary and the leaders who said oh, it's a bit too much hassle, or I don't think we can do that, or, oh, you know, I, that's, a bit, that's a bit too difficult. I, I don't think this organisation can, uh, can move. Uh, oh, we've got, and we've got too many policies and we can't possibly... That stuff needs to go completely out the window. If this was, uh, you know, if you look at the stories about how, how the Spitfire went from being an idea in someone's head in 1936 to being in the air... Uh, by 1939 you look at the the stories of the amount of railways that were laid in a year or something in the UK uh, in the Victorian times you know there are there are times when things have to move really really fast and that kind of mobilization that kind of uh, incredible turnaround needs leaders and people who are able to carry people with them and they carry them with them with uh, with skillful leadership with with brilliant storytelling with uh with an invitation for people to be imaginative and to be brilliant and um and this is that time there, there is no there is no other time you know this is the time uh, you know i wasn't i wasn't alive during the time of the suffragettes we now talk about that as being the most incredible mobilization time that shifted everything i didn't get to walk with martin luther king uh over the bridge in selma and spend the night in in prison uh, with him and all of the stuff that happened there but we now look back on that and go wow those guys responded with purpose and leadership and they got on with it and now we are forever in the debt of, of the people during that time this is that time this is actually probably more uh, of a time than, than any of those ones that have gone before if we manage to do this in the time available it'll be absolutely extraordinary and, and we need the leaders who are able to do that and be one of those leaders be that people will sing songs about and tell stories about and paint pictures of uh, and, and, and paint on the side of buildings. Don't be the kind of leader who everyone's like, 
well, they were a bit crap, weren't they? And, and you know, actually, they really, what was the point of that? You know, be, be one of those people. Yeah, beautiful. What a, what a great, <clears throat> great way to close. Thank you so much, Rob, for that. Uh, great call. And thanks for living the life that you live. I know you have inspired me, many, many people at Fintor, many people around the world over many, many decades now also. So thanks for all the brilliant work that you do. Really look forward to reading your book, which I think is going to be out in the autumn. Yeah. And um, yeah, go well and good luck with all of your ventures into the future. And thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.